Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. Prior to launching into the content for today's episode, I want to provide everyone with an overview of the episode's structure as it's going to be a slight deviation from our typical episode structure given that it has two parts. The first part of the episode will be the standard interview with Dr. Brendan Gabriel unpacking a recently published manuscript in the journal Sleep by Dr. Saidi, Dr. Gabriel, and colleagues entitled, Is it Wiser to Train in the Afternoon or the Early Evening to Sleep Better? The Role of Chronotype in Young Adolescent Athletes. After the interview, we'll transition the episode focus to the SRS Club Hypnos event that occurs each year at the annual Associated Professional Sleep Societies, or APSS, meeting with a specific focus on the data blitz portion of that event. For those unfamiliar, I will provide an overview of the SRS Club Hypnos event as well as the data blitz before acknowledging and congratulating the participants of the 2023 SRS Club Hypnos data blitz. Additionally, we have a special treat for the listeners. As some of the data blitz participants were able to provide a data blitz-esque review of their investigation to include in this episode. This is content definitely worth tuning in for. Lastly, I must acknowledge the fact that we have reached season two of the SRS podcast. Truthfully, it feels surreal to say that this podcast has, well, made it a full journey around the sun. I find myself immensely grateful for the continued support from the SRS board of directors, communications committee, and the SRS community as a whole, as well as those from outside the SRS who have a passion for sleep and circadian science. Thank you. And now, here is an orientation to the topic of focus for today's episode. The alarming scope of sleep health problems among adolescents is a major issue. Concerningly, the magnitude of the problem may be more pronounced in adolescent athletes. A recently performed systematic review reported worse sleep outcomes in adolescent athletes relative to other age groups of athletes. Furthermore, the work by Saidi and colleagues in 2022 found higher rates of insufficient sleep duration and poor sleep quality in adolescent athletes relative to non-athlete adolescents. As such, identifying unique contributors to the heightened risk for sleep problems among adolescent athletes is of notable import, with results likely informative for the development of personalized interventions and strategies to improve sleep health within this population of need. Although exercise is generally recognized as an essential behavior for health with immense benefits psychologically, physically, and cognitively, among other features, the relationship between exercise and sleep is complicated. A robust catalog of research has characterized regular exercise as an enhancer of sleep ability and quality, but there is nuance to this relationship. Differences in the characteristics of exercise, such as intensity, energy expenditure, and modality, can lead to variation in the relationships between exercise and sleep health. Yet, 
the timing of exercise may be the most critical characteristic for sleep health. Given that exercise results in heightened physiology, such as increased core body temperature, a general recommendation for sleep health is to avoid exercising within two to three hours of bedtime. However, recently published research doesn't necessarily fully support this recommendation. For example, Saidi and colleagues in 2020 showed that evening exercise at 8.30 p.m. did not disrupt sleep in a sample of healthy adults with standard bedtimes. Miller and colleagues in 2020 evidenced a similar finding within healthy young males, whereby moderate-intensity exercise performed within three hours of bedtime did not result in degraded sleep. Furthermore, Stutz and colleagues performed a systematic review and meta-analysis in 2019 on the effects of evening exercise on sleep in healthy participants, concluding that there is not enough evidence to support the hypothesis that evening exercise negatively affects sleep. The authors did note that the timing and intensity of evening exercise matters, whereby sleep onset latency, total sleep time, and sleep efficiency were more likely to be impaired after a vigorous training session ending within one hour of bedtime. So it is likely that regular exercise is generally helpful for sleep ability and quality, but there is a major need for further research to granularly dissect the components moderating the effects, whether that be exercise or individual characteristics. Advancing the understanding of these dynamics is critically important for helping address the sleep health of adolescent athletes, given that they present as a uniquely vulnerable population to sleep health problems, yet regularly exercise. One such factor that is likely to play a cardinal role in these dynamics is the circadian rhythm and inter-individual differences in the circadian rhythm. In this episode, Dr. Brendan Gabriel joins me to discuss a recently published manuscript in the journal Sleep produced by Dr. Uzama Saidi, Dr. Gabriel, and colleagues entitled, Is it wiser to train in the afternoon or the early evening to sleep better? The role of chronotype in young adolescent athletes. This manuscript reports on an investigation that was designed to advance the understanding of the impact of exercise timing on bedtime psychological state, sleep quality, sleep architecture, and next day wellness and sleepiness in adolescent athletes, while also analyzing the moderating influence of chronotype on these relations. I hope you enjoy. Before diving into the interview portion of today's episode, here is a brief background on today's guest, Dr. Brendan Gabriel. Dr. Brendan Gabriel completed his PhD at the University of Aberdeen, located in Scotland, in the United Kingdom. He completed postdoc training in the lab of Julian Zarath and Anna Crook at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. While a postdoc, Dr. Gabriel worked on projects centering on understanding the role of circadian rhythms in type 2 diabetes and metabolic disease, as well as how exercise timing can impact metabolic outcomes. Additionally, he visited the University of Copenhagen in Denmark to perform RNA sequencing upon primary muscle cell samples. Since 2020, Dr. Gabriel works as a principal investigator at the University of Aberdeen with a small team of two PhD students. His current interests include circadian rhythm and metabolic health, timing of exercise in various groups, skeletal muscle metabolism, and molecular biology of metabolic disease within muscle. And now for the interview portion of today's episode. Dr. Brendan Gabriel, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me to discuss the research of you, Dr. Saidi, and colleagues. How are you doing today? I'm great, Jesse. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on. Really excited to um, discuss this. It's the 
King's coronation, as we were just discussing, weekend uh, holiday in in the UK. So um, not too disappointed uh, to actually be discussing some science rather than having to watch the BBC coverage (laughs) of the celebrations. I think I prefer that. But yeah, I'm good. Thanks very much. Outstanding. I I always am worried that I'm becoming a burden in people's calendars with scheduling these podcasts. So it's it's wonderful to hear that it's actually an extremely convenient time for you. And you're doing necessary work here in the dissemination of science. So I really appreciate that. And although we're in a little bit opposite times of day where I'm in my morning and you're in your afternoon, we do share a very similar environment at the moment with the grayness in our skies. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, it's pretty standard, I guess, for the UK, but it's very grey and rainy here. But I have managed to get some uh, what minimal daylight there is and, and gone for a run today as well. So made the most of it. Fantastic. And I too got outside, got rained on a little bit, did some running this morning. And maybe that comes up in a later conversation because clearly my timing of exercise was in the morning. And clearly this episode is going to focus on timing of exercise and how that may affect things like sleep, physiological wellness, and so on and so forth. Uh, And we'll get into all the scientific stuff a little bit later. But Brendan, I give in the orientation a brief introduction to the guest, you. And well, you provided that material. So thank you so much for that. But I always think it's enjoyed, appreciated, and a unique feature of this platform to just have the guests tell their own story of how they kind of got here into sleep and circadian research, because often they're nonlinear and it's a really unique field. So let's jump off with that. Can you please tell us a little bit about your journey to this point in sleep and circadian research? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as as you say, I, I think I had many deviations on my my journey to sleep and circadian research. So I really became, you know, fascinated in biology, really when I was a teenager. So quite relevant to the paper we're talking about today. I was a junior athlete in endurance sports. And when I was about, probably about 13 or 14, I really started to become interested in training uh, in, in the body and really fascinated by the body's sort of plasticity and response to exercise and how um, you know hard work and exercise can really transform your body and your physiological responses and I started you know reading around that and becoming really interested and a a lot of the the Scandinavian um, sports science was really exciting to me so you know I I remember having this textbook uh, written by Heike Rusko who's a, a Finnish sports scientist And there he was really talking about some of the sort of molecular responses within muscle to exercise training. Um, And I was also reading research being done by um, Ben Saltine, who's one of the sort of titans of exercise science in Scandinavia. So a lot of the exciting sports science, exercise physiology was coming out of Scandinavia. Uh, I did my PhD in uh, Aberdeen in, in Scotland, where I am now. And that was focusing on exercise physiology for sort of health research and also looking at skeletal muscle metabolism. So I I went from sports science to looking more at sort of exercise physiology and skeletal muscle metabolism for uh, health within the context of mainly metabolic disease. So obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, things like that. I then had the opportunity to do a postdoc in Scandinavia in the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm under the, the tutelage of Julian Ziraf and Anna Crook. 
And at that point, Julien and Anna were really getting interested in uh, circadian rhythms, in, uh, in metabolism, and also looking at the time of day exercise. So, you know, it's not something that I immediately was drawn to in my sort of undergraduate studies, but clearly that the sort of relevance of that was becoming more and more important and evident within metabolic disease as I was doing my PhD and, you know, having the opportunity to come on that project once uh, Julian and Anna had got funding for that was really exciting. And it was there that at the time, Julian and Anna did not, had not done many circadian studies. They were really leaning on the expertise of their collaborators. So people like Paolo Zizoncorzi, who's who sadly passed away um, in the last few years, and and others in that collaboration really engendered that lab with you know a, a motivation to do circadian research. And uh, during my postdoc, we actually had to set up a lot of the experiments, either very similar experiments to what other labs had done, or some more novel assays um, using the the amazing resource of having access to primary skeletal muscle cells in in that lab. So that was really my introduction to circadian research was very much a sort of in vitro environment where we're just isolating the molecular circadian clock in cells. But in parallel to that, one thing that's really amazing about the um, environment which uh, Julian and Anna have at the Karolinska is that they are able to do um, uh, exercise physiology studies and human clinical studies in parallel. And that's something I'm trying to continue here at Aberdeen, in, uh, albeit at the moment and uh, a slightly smaller scale. And I guess I should just mention, you know, in relation to the current study that we'll discuss a bit later, you know, that's my expertise really in circadian rhythm. So I was very excited when Usama uh, Saidi contacted me and, you know, they are doing really nice measurements of sleep quality with uh, polysomnography and wearable devices, which is uh, amazing. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. So very, very excited to have collaborated with Usama and hopefully we'll be collaborating more in the future. I love it. Truthfully, in preparation for this, just looking through kind of your Google Scholar profile, history of publications, I saw kind of that journey, right? But it wasn't necessarily salient in my brain how all the steps came to be. But it was, it's really cool to hear it from you. But also, I just love how you approach research from I'm not just doing exploration. I want to have some sort of clinical relevance and kind of move the ball on a health perspective. And the word for that is translational. And it really shows up across the board in a lot of your manuscripts. And I was just cruising through them this morning. And some of the titles were a little bit intimidating for me, too. So I'll have to pass the microphone over to you when we get to any sort of physiological discussions, given your, your wealth and knowledge there. And shout out to Dr. Saidi as well. I was really, really impressed by the manuscript. The word that I want to use is poetic. Uh, it was really, really well written. And as you pointed out, there's a lot of meritorious aspects of the study, as far as leveraging ambulatory PSG, things like that, that should not go overlooked. But when you do have free time, Dr. Gabriel, looking at your Google Scholar page, I don't think you have free time, but <laughs> when you when you do have free time and you're not on the SRS podcast, what sort of hobbies and interests, what do you like to do? Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, my, my free time is impacted even more. Uh, so we were, me and my partner were fortunate enough to um, uh, have a child 10 months ago. So um, most of my free time currently is <laughs> taken up with uh, looking after my daughter, which is absolutely amazing. I enjoy it. 
and if I if I have any free time left over after that, then uh, I try uh, if I can to to get out for some kind of exercise. Congratulations to you and your family. That's outstanding, and I'm I'm always so impressed when anybody. A lot of my friends are of that age where they're reproducing, and I just see their life get really disrupted for a set period of time. And society's basically like, well, deal with it. And you know, in America, we can improve as far as leave of absences and things like that that are granted to mothers and fathers. But I find it even more impressive when I see it in academics because there is no stopping. You know, there's usually grant funding, the studies are ongoing, there's things in place, and there's no perfect time ever. But it's just always so fascinating to me that these people, you, can maintain the professional obligations while I think even more importantly, maintain a psychological well-being in some capacity when there's no sleep. And I just, I have no idea how people do that, especially in the, you know, first three to five months or so, where at best in a very collaborative, helpful partnership between two people, you're trading off two to three hour sleep periods, more or less. So kudos to you for making it to the 10 month mark. I imagine things are stabilizing a little bit more on that front and affording some, some better sleep for you. Now, we are going to be talking about children, more so adolescence and kind of the teenage years. But thinking back to your life in those periods of time, mentioned earlier, you got hooked onto biology early. Did you want to be a biologist? Did you have aspirations for a different career? Yeah, so I, I don't remember um, having a particular professional career ambition when I was a teenager. So I went to school in um a fairly deprived area of Wales, which is quite a deprived country within the UK. So I think, you know, my main ambition as a as a child was kind of um, surviving that environment. And, I, you know, I was very privileged in many ways that I had a, a stable home environment with very supportive parents. And I was also privileged, as I mentioned earlier, to be able to and have the time and resources to do sport. So, you know, sport and exercise was really you know, an escape in many ways for me. And as I said, that really, you know, engendered my passion for biology. So I think I did have an idea that I wanted to do something to do with biology and really understand what was happening in sports. I probably hadn't put my finger on exactly what that was, but I, I basically followed my interests. And as I said, you know, I had many privileges in my life, which allowed me to, um, to do that. And you know, I was able to go to university, study sports science and work, you know, in Aberdeen, particularly at that time, there were many researchers there who were just incredible um, teachers as well. So they were really, you know, doing the cutting edge of the, the sort of exercise physiology, sports science, but they were also really passionate teachers as well. So I was really, you know, privileged to have that environment. And then as I spoke about earlier, the, the, the privilege to go to the Kamalinska Institute and have that environment as well. So you know, for me, I really value the experience that I had with exercise, the ability to exercise. And I think it's very relevant to what we'll discuss today that, you know, children have that ability, the resources to exercise. And, you know, if we can optimize that environment in any way and, and give children the ability to exercise without impacting on other aspects of their studies or their lives or their health, I think that's really, really important. And I think there is a, you know, I was talking about the sort of deprivation in the, in the area that I was exposed to. I think there is um, an equity kind of point to that as well, that, you know, the, the sort of resources and the infrastructure 
is really important as well. Um, and again, having you know lived in and worked in Sweden and uh, Denmark also, you know, those are countries with very very good infrastructure for cycling, and um, particularly Denmark. And I think you know that my experience of that, and I think the literature as well backs that up that the resources and infrastructure are very very important for children their access to physical activity and exercise and building that into their day-to-day -day routine rather than having that as a sort of extracurricular activity and I think that will maybe come into some of the discussion we have later on as well. Absolutely beautiful and I fully agree that there can be immense changes that we can make at a societal level small nudges that have remarkable effects downstream for our, our health and functionality as a society and People always describe exercise as fully accessible. I mean, obviously, when we get into physical comorbidities and things like that, the degree of exercise may not be. But usually in kind of the early adolescent stage, the physical health is there to the point where exercise is accessible and equitable. But as you pointed out, it's not always the case when it comes to that equitable point. I think what they're saying with exercise being accessible is yeah you can put on some shoes and go run or go hang on some monkey bars or whatever it may be or go play some basketball but if the societal structure is not in place to provide transportation to these locations safely or to have just the resources available i mean i feel remarkably blessed here in madison wisconsin it's the i believe city in the u.s with the most parks now should every park that's labeled a park be considered a park here probably not but <laughs> that still aids into a healthier society because everywhere you look, there's some nature, there's some grass, there's some trees. It looks like fun to go on the swings over there, maybe play some soccer, whatever it may be. And just those small little changes can add up. So I love that you're thinking about it on that front. And steering back to vocation though, if you were to have a different career, you're not allowed to be a sleep and circadian researcher, Brendan. I'm not allowing you to say that. What would you do with your career then? It's a very difficult question to answer. In my late teenage years, you know, I was really uh, driven by my uh, athletic training. So, you know, I, th I think I had very little natural talent for, for endurance sport uh, and I did everything I, I achieved was really through hard work. But yeah, I, th I think if I had any natural talent or ability, <laughs> I would have um, tried to go to the Olympics in an endurance sport, which I was a very, very long way away. But, uh, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm very privileged and fortunate to have landed in, in the career that I did. Awesome. Well, maybe there are endurance athletes out there who could benefit from your guidance and support and expertise as they adjust to traveling across various time zones and experience chronic sleep deprivation and circadian disruption and all sorts of things like that. So as you pointed out, you're still aligning your various passions within your career, which is something that I'm trying to do as well as someone who is very passionate about sport growing up. And I think that'll get brought up later on too, is growing up in Phoenix, Arizona, where it's blistering hot as a golfer and a baseball player. There's certain times a day that you're going to practice relative to others. And that clearly has an impact on my circadian rhythm at this point in life, given my exposure to all those zeitgeibers at certain times a day and things like that. But for me, I certainly want to find my way back into the sport domain and to help not just from a performance perspective, but kind of where you're coming from, which is just an overall well-being perspective. Because it's not just about sport, as you're pointing out. It's about exercise as this panacea of something that can be used to treat pathology and disease and prevent. And it's a really, really robust panacea. 
uh, and if we can utilize it appropriately and further unlock the kind of seemingly endless benefits. But if it comes at a trade-off of sleep quality, we're clearly reducing the benefit of exercise and maybe causing harm. And so it's about how do we tease apart all the interrelations to best organize and optimize for an individual. I really hear that coming through from your perspective, and that's fantastic. Now, shifting gears a little bit to more of the scientific discussion and getting into the article, I stand by it that this morning I created some keywords and put them in red on our show outline. But for some reason, I'm looking at the show outline right now, and they have somehow disappeared. So I always open this section up by telling the listeners that these are hot off the cognitive press for the guest in that they have not seen them yet. And so whatever comes to mind is hot off the cognitive press. But in this unique keyword association, these are going to be hot off Jesse's brain as well. (laughs) So again, keyword association, Brendan, whatever first thing comes to mind, you can say it. Some people say a very short answer and some people expand upon it. I leave that open to you. Are you ready for the first term of the keyword association? Yes. Let's start with this. Circadian rhythm. Circadian rhythm. I guess the first thing that comes to mind is when I'm describing this to uh, students, it's very important to distinguish it from what is not, which isn't diurnal rhythm. So the the important component of circadian rhythm is that it's intrinsic, right? So it's it's something that occurs in a, a manner that's regulated by itself. So the example I always give to my students of something that's not the circadian rhythm is the temperature of a rock that's out in the, the sun all day. That's a, a diurnal rhythm effectively. And then I always go back to the example of the cells that you know we know we can take cells from the body and they have this maintained rhythm. So I would say that is circadian rhythm. And then I guess expanding on that, you know, within the body, it's just this uh, fascinating topic that I absolutely love. And it's just this wonderful area of research that's really exploded in the last decade. But, you know, again, something I say to my students is circadian rhythms. We've known about them for hundreds of years. Um, people can observe plants and, and the rhythms and opening and closing of, of flowers and leaves, which is one really obvious example of a sort of uh, conserved circadian rhythm. And it's also, we know from studying different types of organisms, that it's something that's very, very well conserved. So that means it's very, very ancient in terms of the biology. And one more thing, one last thing that I try and convey to my students is a lot of the evidence suggests that the initial circadian rhythms were in response to the sort of harmful effects, the deleterious effects of UV light upon the organism and it's always interesting to bear that in mind you know when we do come to human physiology because you know as you mentioned earlier you know light is of course the the sort of mother of all zeitgebers so that i think that's really important to, to bear in mind that you know sunlight really is the sort of originator the the original zeitgeber very beautiful and it's been remarkable to see the momentum is the word i i think best captures what's transpired in the domain of circadian rhythm research over the last kind of decade plus, there's been clearly an explosion and people are getting really excited. But to me, it's always been fascinating kind of as you neatly unpacked that we've known about this for hundreds of years. And yet now we're only getting to it and we're still very high level, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on, but there's going to be a lot here when it comes to acute performance, chronic performance, 
health and disease. And we're really starting to understand that this is kind of like an engine and a really, really important engine across all aspects of physiology that then shapes our behavior, that then shapes our uh, psychological state, all these different things. So beautiful answer. And the circadian rhythm itself is beautiful. Now, next term, let's go with sleep, health, and exercise. Yeah, critically important, I would say. One of the first things I, I thought of there was sort of interaction. And I, I think there isn't enough evidence yet. But we need to do more research on how they interact. And I think, you know, that's why this, this study is really interesting. And yeah, it's a very important area that we need to do more research in. Brilliant. And you said it correctly, the interaction, right? And and the complexity of it. Clearly in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, there's the very, very universal recommendation of do not exercise three hours prior to bedtime. And it makes a lot of sense. You don't want to heighten pre-sleep arousal. We know it has an effect on core body temperature, all those different dynamics. But there's a lot of nuance in there that we're missing. So if I'm not exercising then, when should I exercise? And what if my life doesn't afford exercise at a different time? What can I do then? Am I just, is, is the ship sailed? I almost used a, a phrase that we probably shouldn't use on this podcast, but <laughs> yeah. And so then it becomes what sort of compensatory strategies can be built in for a personalized manner so that to the best ability for an individual, we're addressing all the domains of health to the best degree possible. And keeping on the term with interaction, I think we'll land our keyword association with this term, which is chronotype by exercise timing interaction. Chronotype. So, I mean, the first word there, you know, I, often I think with a lot of these terms that are used by researchers um, in sort of quite niche or relatively niche fields, I think often there isn't a great consensus of what they actually mean and I think that is the case with chronotype so it really depends on the sort of outcome measure that's used and I think you know often it's measured by questionnaire and and we know from from lots of types of research that you know self-reported questionnaires are often used for instance for food intake mood things like that and it's it's often really the only realistic way to measure a lot of these things and I think there's always a, a balance between the sort of uh, advantage of not bringing people into the lab too much and getting white coat syndrome and also you know having like real world kind of in the field measurements so i think questionnaires have a, a validity there you know hopefully in the future we'll be we'll have some kind of wearable device that's designed to measure i don't know me melatonin and, and cortisol and, and we'll be able to get sort of really objective measures in, in real world settings of chronotype Another really important aspect there for, for exercise is, you know, the habitual uh, environment, so the diurnal environment, right? So I suspect that people could habituate to sort of adapt to training because we know from other literature that you are able to change your chronotype in response to your environment and, and with exercise, that's no, no different. So we know, for instance, that, you know, some people exercise better in the morning some people exercise better in the evening but in general most people perform better they have a better exercise capacity in the afternoon early evening so we know that most world records are set in the afternoon early evening of course there's confounding factors there there's television schedules etc but you can measure that more objectively in the lab 
in both elite athletes and non uh, untrained athletes or moderately trained athletes and you know generally people perform better in exercise in in the afternoon early evening and that's particularly important in high intensity and power strength um, kind of exercise but if you habituate those differences reduce so we know that people who train uh, and adapt to training in the morning the literature shows that those people have a, a smaller magnitude of difference between morning exercise and afternoon evening exercise so i think you know habituation to the timing of exercise is, is a critical factor you know with when we're thinking about chronotype and i don't think we can entirely you know delineate the sort of intrinsic biological component of chronotype from the environment and even coming to things like meal timing you know it's it's obviously the culture in the modern western world to have three meals a day but that wasn't always the case and it's not the case across all cultures all over the world so even that is something that we've habituated to you know in terms of having three meals a day so i think we always need to consider this as chronobiologists what is that particular individual that participant what is their um, habitual diurnal environment and what makes that and i think it's why we always strive to try and do lab studies where we do look at sort of mechanisms behind biology but we also strive to do real world studies where we actually see the effect of what's happening to people in the real world and i think that's really important because there's often things you don't expect to happen or to impact people's habituation in the lab that do impact them in the real world you know, an example of that is is shift work, and we know that sort of some of the deleterious effects of shift work. But you know, there's been lots of work now looking at the food environment. So that's something that's really important in shift work that one might not have necessarily considered uh, if if you're just looking at sort of at the lab components of that. Perfect, and it's always been a bit of a challenge for me to fully digest the, in some ways contrasting nature of the circadian rhythm as it's this incredibly important kind of fundamental feature that translates across you know plant and animal kingdom so it's been in the evolutionary pipeline for quite some time right and so you would think it'd be pretty fixed at that point to some degree but at the same time there's also this immense flexibility and malleability associated with it and i don't see that often necessarily in kind of evolutionary characteristics that develop over time. So I think it is a really unique thing that's emerged across evolution. And clearly the flexibility is highly adaptive for us to adapt to various changes in our environment. And so a really awesome result of evolution in many ways. And I think that sets the stage nicely for us to talk kind of big picture here on the kind of rationale, methodology, and results before we take a deeper dive into the more nuanced results and kind of big picture themes here and, and implications. And as I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to focus on specifically an article published by Dr. Saidi, you and colleagues that was recently published in Sleep entitled, Is it Wiser to Train in the Afternoon or the Early Evening to Sleep Better? The Role of Chronotype in Young Adolescent Athletes. And for the listeners, I'll link to the article in the show notes here. And just want to be mindful of you know, Dr. Gabriel's role in this investigation, unlike some other past interviews, we're not going to go so deep into the methodology. I'm just grateful that a member of the team, Dr. Gabriel, is able to step in here 
instead of Dr. Saidi. And I just appreciate Dr. Saidi for steering me to you, Dr. Gabriel, so we could actually have some discussion on this paper, because I think it's great on so many levels. And kudos to you and your colleagues for this impressive piece of literature. But we'll start with just kind of a 10,000 foot view of the investigation. We've kind of alluded to it already to some degree, but just kind of big picture, what was the kind of main impetus or rationale or motivation for performing this research? So, yeah, the, the study is um, conducted with adolescent athletes. So I think there's, there's two aspects there. So the first is adolescents. And, you know, as, as we described in the introduction of, of the study, you know, this is a time when there's vast biological changes happening. So there's, there's hormonal changes. Of, we know, obviously, of, about many of the, the sort of physical characteristics that are changing as well during adolescence. And we know that circadian rhythms are changing drastically during this, this period as well. And this appears to be quite heterogeneous. So it's, it's not consistent in any way, really. And it's very individualized in terms of the sort of the changes that are happening. And this is compared to younger children who have more consistent, more standard kind of circadian rhythms than adolescents. And also compared to adults. So going from sort of you know, mid-20s all the way to up to sort of 60, people have much more standard homogenous circadian rhythms. And of course, there are changes in indiv individuals in circadian rhythms, but in adolescence, this is really pronounced in terms of the differences here. So that's really important from a biological perspective to be able to optimize sleep in people in adolescence because they have these fundamental changes in their biology that are occurring. But also from their environmental point of view, people who are teenagers in most countries are undergoing, you know, huge social pressures that often induce, you know, anxiety, things like this. They're undergoing stress from, in terms of school results, exams, again, in most countries. And in the modern world, there's lots of elements which relate to screen time in terms of, you know, social media, gaming, et cetera, that might impact um, on their diurnal rhythms from an environmental point of view. So I think adolescents are a critical population that we need to try and optimize sleep. And we know sleep is not very good in adolescents compared to other age groups. We know that this impacts on schooling and education. We also know that it impacts on mental health and well-being. And we also know that it impacts to some extent on metabolic health as well. And the outcomes for this are different there might be differences again the, the literature is an early stage on this there might be differences in terms of ethnicity as well and in terms of socioeconomic status so we need it's really important from an uh, equity point of view as well and one group that is more impacted than others is uh, athletes so adolescent athletes actually seem to have worse sleep than non-athletic counterparts, which might be a little bit surprising given what we know from exercise generally um, seems to have a, a sort of positive impact on circadian rhythms and, and makes them more robust. That might be a little bit surprising for people who study circadian rhythms in adults that actually the, the athletes in this population, adolescents, seem to have worse sleep their non-athletic counterparts. So I think it's a critically important population to try and optimize sleep. Uh, and there's very little known in this population about the role of uh, timing of exercise on sleep quality. So that was a sort of the rationale and the background for the study. 
Well done. And I think about this population a lot. I talk about it a lot with my colleague, uh, Dr. Jonathan Cherist. We talk about, as you neatly pointed out, this intersection of complicating factors that results in disproportionate risk for sleep health problems in the adolescent athletes relative to their non-athlete peers. And clearly it goes against the understood relationship that exercise should be beneficial for sleep, right? So there's more complexity here. And it's probably the difficulties of fitting in exercise and sport training, given the social desires, the academic demands at this age in particular too, some adolescents and teenagers are now taking on occupations, you know, 10 to 20 hour a week jobs that throws another wrench into the scheduling dynamics. And so it's almost like they're swimming upstream relative to others because they don't get more hours in the day, but need to cram more things in. And so naturally that easily translates into insufficient sleep duration. And if you're having to run around all day and exercise close to your bedtime, maybe some pre-sleep arousal that degrades your ability to fall asleep and also maybe interferes with your ability to achieve the depths of sleep, aiding in restoration, recovery, and all the, the good stuff of sleep. So a lot of complicating factors and definitely a population of need. I'm glad that there's a lot of attention now being driven towards that population. This study was great on many levels, and we could spend a lot of time dissecting the, the details, but just kind of big picture, what sort of methodology did you and your team utilize to try and explore these relationships? Yeah, so you know, as as you mentioned earlier, obviously the the experts really in in the sort of um, sleep chronobiology on the team were you know Asuma Saidi and, and Pascal Douche, and you know they've employed polysomnography to measure you know many facets and aspects of the sleep architecture um, in terms of quality, duration, and many facets within that. So I think that was that was the main really sort of gold standard outcome that I loved about the study. And then they've used some really well-validated tools in terms of questionnaires that we were mentioned earlier. And, you know, as we were sort of discussing a little bit by email, you know, one of the nice things about the study is that it's in a really well-standardized group. But, so you have this sort of rugby academy um, and, and these athletes were on average about 16 years old, but they have a, a fairly well-structured sort of day which makes them a really uh, you know, attractive population to do these kind of studies in as a proof of concept and a really well-standardized cohort with well-managed kind of um, adherence to the study. And then I think, you know, the, the idea would be to expand these findings to further cohorts later on. And it was a crossover study. So it was a, a baseline period. Then participants either did afternoon exercise just after lunch or exercise quite late in the evening. And this was a high intensity exercise for over an hour. So they did a, an interval session, then a, a 60 minutes of rugby training, which is obviously a quite high intensity sport. And they had all these outcomes measured the night after and the day after in terms of um, fatigue questionnaires, obviously with the measures of sleep architecture over the night as well. So I think a really nicely designed study, obviously the crossover nature, whereby each individual has each outcome in each trial, I think is a really, a really strong type of study and is, is something we try and do as often as possible here in Aberdeen as well. So I think that's a real strength of the study as well. And I think 
as I said, you know, the standardized environment meant that we could really get these good outcome measures as well. Yeah, beautifully put. And again, it's a very, very elegant design and utilization of unique resources, if you will, with that training center and so on. And I believe the children version of the morningness, eveningness questionnaire was utilized to characterize the circadian type, if you will. We'll get into the complexity of circadian preference versus diurnal preference versus chronotype versus insert whatever you want to use. And I believe if I remember correctly, that during the actual study, the bedtime was fixed, the sleep period from somewhere around like 10 p.m. to 7 or 10.30 to 7.30, one of those two, but a nine-hour window. That to me was kind of an interesting wrinkle into the equation, just because it doesn't necessarily align with maybe an eveningist bedtime for this cohort, and it may align with the morningness more tendency, but it to me was at least just an interesting wrinkle but I thought the team did the right thing or the best thing you could do in this spot, which was allow for the acclimation week prior to doing anything. So it was in training that sleep schedule before measuring anything, which I thought was necessary. And obviously all these things are trade-offs, right? If we don't standardize the bedtime, that may be a count confound itself on the rest of the data. And clearly we're going for validity here. So let's standardize the bedtime. But there's some other aspects too that I just found remarkably impressive to build in, to think about, and also challenging to execute. If I remember correctly, the participants weren't allowed to use electronic devices in the evening or at night. And mind you, listeners, we're talking about, I think, 14 to 15-year-old male (laughs) rugby athletes here. So in your peak period of wanting to use your electronic device and no caffeine use, which I wasn't using, well, I guess at that point, maybe I'd gotten to energy drinks, but I wasn't utilizing caffeine to the same degree that I do nowadays in the morning, having your coffee and so on. But I imagine some of the participants had differential relationships with caffeine that in turn may have also impacted kind of psychological ratings and so on. But those are things that are complicated and we must control for in some capacity. And that's just the removal of caffeine on that front makes sense. And so, yeah, they went through this acclimation period to try and reduce the kind of inter-individual differences that could lead to issues with the sleep schedule and so on. And then they were randomly crossed over into either the afternoon exercise condition, which was I think one to 3 PM versus the evening exercise, which is like five to seven or five 30 to seven 30 PM. And the last thing I want to talk about the standardization that I think is remarkably impressive, but also another wrinkle here is the standardization of the meal times where every participant had the same meal time schedule, which is obviously necessary because Eating is a zeitgeber that sends signals to the circadian system that could create a confound here. But obviously, people eat at different times of the day. They have different relationships with food. And some of that could bleed into the self-report ratings of sleepiness, fatigue, psychological distress, whatever it may be. But again, trade-offs here, right? The fact that participants were able to tolerate this structure, I think, says a lot for the study. And the word I'll emphasize there again is tolerate. But impressive to be able to complete this and especially, again, using the ambulatory PSG. I don't want to overlook that. Very, very important to be able to capture things like N3 proportion, given that we know the relationship between slow wave sleep and, say, like human growth hormone and things like that. When we start thinking about athletic populations and just the restoration in general from the sleep that we're not going to be able to capture when we use things like actigraphy and even wearable devices, they're useful on this front, but the accuracy of 
and three, or as they like to say, deep sleep, unclear at this point or uh, still room for improvement there. So the fact that you were able to use ambulatory PSG, amazing. Now, generally speaking, the study was a bit of a, a success, if you will, relative to the a priori hypotheses. What did uh, you and your colleagues find? Yeah, so in this study, as you said earlier, I guess it kind of makes sense in some ways. So the exercise later in the evening impacted on sleep quality, as as one might expect. So that was particularly evident uh, earlier on in in the sleep duration. So some of this, uh, the the sort of main outcome measures of sleep quality were reduced when people did evening exercise, and it also impacted on on self-reported measures of fatigue the next day so people didn't feel as good basically didn't feel as ready to sort of exercise and they felt more fatigued the day after and the really interesting finding from this study as you uh, quite rightly mentioned earlier that the the chronotype was taken into account so when they did a, a stratified analysis where they split the groups into a morning chronotype an intermediate chronotype or an evening chronotype These outcomes were apparently driven by the morning and intermediate chronotype and the evening chronotype were much more robust in terms of their response to evening exercise. And when you think about it, that logically makes sense that people who uh, feel better in the evenings feel more able to do things in the evenings are more robust in withstanding exercise in the evenings. Uh, And they didn't have any of these changes in in sleep quality or fatigue um, the next day. Yeah, brilliant put. And and it was remarkable how consistent the findings were across just about every measured outcome variable, where it was this global kind of a negative effect of evening exercise on X, Y, and Z. But if you look within underneath the hood, it's really only being driven by, in most situations, the morning group, but also the intermediate group at times. And I thought that was interesting too, because the vast majority are probably more in that intermediate group relative to the extremes. And we often focus on the extremes, but clearly this has impact on the 50 to 75% of the individuals and adolescent athletes. And I thought that was really, really interesting uh, that it wasn't just specific to the morning group, but great job there setting our stage. And I think we can dive a little bit deeper. And we talked, we opened this door already, the nomenclature, the variation that is constantly utilized in the literature where to me, i often think that chronotypes should be in reference to the biology, whether that's, you know, gene expression, core body temperature fluctuations, something that is objectively measured for the body, dim light, melatonin onset, things like that. But that's not universal, where chronotype often is just utilized generally to capture things like one psychological preference for sleep and wake, you know, circadian preference, diurnal preference, however you want to describe that. And This investigation relied upon a self-report questionnaire. As you pointed out earlier, sometimes this is the only way we can do it just from an accessibility perspective and a feasibility perspective. But given your expertise in the area of circadian rhythms, you've already opened the door a little bit. What are your general thoughts about the use of diurnal preference as a proxy into the biology? Yeah, I mean, like like we were discussing earlier, I think there's always trade-offs with these things, of course. Self-reported questionnaires are so easy for access, etc. As you mentioned, of course, in an ideal circadian uh, experiment, you want to have blood samples at the least, if not biopsies to look at gene expression, etc. 
just going back to the study in general, I, I think, you know, you made a, a really nice explanation of the adherence to the study protocol that these athletes underwent. I think it's interesting to consider here the environment which allows them to, to do that because clearly these are people who are, are get on in their careers, in their sort of sport by showing an ability to withstand discomfort uh, and in many cases pain. And I think, you know, ethically, we have to be careful here when we start to propose lots of invasive outcomes in, in these studies in adolescent athletes, because these are certainly people who are very willing to put their bodies through a lot of discomfort in their day-to-day -day lives. And, and I think we ethically have to consider, take that into consideration when we're doing a sort of cost-benefit analysis of looking at invasive measures. So it would have been really nice, for instance, to have blood samples in these athletes. Um, so that's something really interesting to consider. Uh, and clearly, you know, the, the, uh, as you mentioned, the resources, uh, the ability to take blood samples is often very different in, in depending on the types of studies we're doing. And I think there is an element here of, yes, we could look at blood samples and measure, you know, lots of hormones that we're really interested in, but you can measure those for one day. Uh, who knows what's going on in that person's life? Is that an objective measure and, and relative, you know, representative of their sort of normal habitual situation and i think in terms of gene expression again very important but uh again you know all organs are very very different in that regard and we know that muscle you know responds very much to zeitgebers that other tissues don't for instance so i think one more point to, to consider as well is, is blood flow so you know I, I think it's really interesting and we did mention this in the discussion of this manuscript a little bit that if you think about where blood is flowing into in the body, if you do exercise generally, you're going to have increased perfusion and vasodilation of, of those um, muscle beds that are performing the exercise. So when we measure the, the concentration of hormones in the blood, you know, is that affecting the levels of, of hormones in the blood? Are tissues potentially acting as sponges for, for these hormones in terms of them getting dissipated in the capillaries there? So again, I think there's lots and lots of factors to take into account when, when we measure things in a study. And I think the evidence suggests that self-reported chronotype is not too bad, certainly compared to other types of questionnaires. There doesn't appear to be the same societal pressure to, to modulate your responses in a, in a sleep questionnaire as it does in other types of questionnaire. For instance, food intake, which we know people ubiquitously underreport their food intake and there seems to be some kind of moral societal pressure to do that also in terms of moods you know i think there's lots of moral ethical kind of societal pressures to report on your mood and i'm sure there are in in sleep reporting as well but i i think the evidence suggests that it's a little bit more accurate than other types of self-reporting so i don't think it's that bad as a an outcome measure but the more sources of data we have the better if we can show things orthogonally then i think that's always better and i think you know nicely in this study and i think that's down to the expertise of usama saidi and pascal douche and the rest of the team you know the evening chronotype there that was self-reported were the ones that were robust to evening exercise so i think in some ways that that questionnaire that self-reported questionnaire was somewhat validated by the outcomes of the study yeah, you took the words out of my mouth there where it almost was confirmatory. I was going to say validated, but confirmatory on that end that you saw that 
results in that kind of linear fashion. And I didn't look too deep into the plots as to whether there were kind of notable variations within the groups, because that's always something that I'm really interested in. I imagine you are as well. And I think that's where I like, I'm uncertain as to where the field should go in circadian rhythm research, because I agree that there's this immense benefit of accessibility and feasibility from the questionnaires. But to me, the importance is going to come from kind of the convergence or divergence between one psychological preference and the actual biology, where that may be a huge moderating factor here, where somebody in the morningness group may actually report morningness, but their biology is actually eveningness. And then when they actually go through the evening condition, they don't show the same effect as those that are in the morning group with them because it's actually their biology is now more, it should have been in the eveningness group, so to speak. And to me, this is like the next step, but given your expertise, you know, it really feels like we're at an important nexus right now in this type of research where the technology is improving, but it's not quite there yet to give us the resolution that we want for insert circadian feature, right? You alluded to it earlier. Can we get more time points on Dilmo through wearables or whatever it may be? Where do you think we're headed in the proximal and, and kind of distal areas of this research to better look at the circadian rhythm psychologically, but also biologically and kind of from a multidimensional standpoint? Yeah, f- fantastic. And I think, you know, clearly we mentioned the wearable technology. I th- I'm sure there will be more and more devices coming on the market. And I think I think that's one of the things, part of the sort of uh, explosion of circadian research has been due to these wearable devices that we can measure outcomes over 24 hours or more in the field in real world settings. So I think wearable technology is going to be critically important to a lot of the research. But I think also, and that's something that I'm trying to do in, in my sort of nascent uh, lab is to collaborate with people with different types of expertise. Uh, and I think we see that more and more in the field of circadian research that people are, you know, some labs might have expertise in circadian molecular biology, others in psychological well-being, different types of data, et cetera. And I think we just need to work together to get as many outcome measures as we can and ask, you know, precise questions about the, these outcome measures. So I think further collaboration between people with different expertise is going to be essential to building in this new technology that's coming in and really asking the right questions and getting, you know, sensible outcomes out of it as well. Beautiful. But yeah, it is complicated and it is going to require the development of kind of multidisciplinary teams and and leveraging our expertise. And again, the trade-offs, right? No study is going to be perfect. And we just have to think about burden to participants and getting the most comprehensive measurement we can possible. Science is fun. Now, you mentioned it earlier that we saw some differential results in the sleep itself, depending on how we looked at the resolution of sleep, whether that's across the entire night or within the first three hours, the first 180 minutes. And I think it makes sense to kind of look at that area of sleep, given that we might see more pronounced effects there, just where the circadian system is still responding to the exercise. There may be more heightened body temperature, more pre-sleep arousal that is now still infiltrating the sleep period. And so the effects may be more pronounced there. Was that kind of what you're thinking as well as a team? Would you hypothesize as going forward, this may be a more fruitful area of study relative to the all night? Yeah, I totally agree. 
you know, I, I think clearly that the effects were more pronounced, uh, as you say, in the early periods after the exercise. And again, that logically makes sense, right? That you, you have this acute effect of the exercise and it, it does seem to start tailing off after three hours, which is nice to know, I think. And again, those three hours are really, really important. If, if, you, if you get poor quality sleep in three hours, that's really going to affect you. Yeah, it's really interesting to consider some of the um, physiology behind that. And, you know, we didn't really have any measures of that in this study, so we can only really speculate. But what we know from the literature, you know, you mentioned body temperature. I've already mentioned blood flow. And I think, you know, thinking about things like the concentration of metabolites in the blood as well, you know, how's, uh, you know, we know there's lots of sensors in the brain um, that sense metabolites. Are they impacting on the hypothalamus, on the SCN, things like that as well. And is that impacting then on, on sleep? So I think there's lots and lots of things to consider here. And we would need really to go into rodent models to sort of tease out some of these factors um, and how they link to the brain specifically. But yeah, I think that's going to be a really fruitful area of research for sure. And I think, you know, we can then look at the the habituation to that and, and see if this is a consistent finding or whether again people can adapt to doing exercise later on as well i love it and and just for the listeners out there what drew my attention to that kind of theme in the first place was that within the results there was no statistically significant difference between groups if i remember correctly in terms of n3 proportion when looking at it from an all-night perspective but if you looked at it from within the first three hours that's where that finding really emerges and that just kind of showcases again it makes sense given the disproportionately dense amount of N3 we have at the beginning of the night versus REM being more at the end of the night, how the lens would change kind of your ability to detect these effects. So I thought that was really cool that you embarked upon that organically in the research. With this study, you're really strictly focusing on the effect of one Zeitgeiber, if you will, which is movement, physical activity, high intensity, vigorous exercise. But Lights are most powerful zeitgeiber. And then, as you mentioned, we also have kind of meal timing and the digestion associated with it. There was standardization of the meal timing, which was great. We can control for that factor to the best of our ability. And the limitation section did acknowledge that the exercise occurred outside. So some light fluctuation is probably relevant, but what are you going to do, right? It is what it is. Do you think these results will be fully aligned, regardless of whatever sort of circadian disruptor or circadian influencer is utilized? Meal timing, I think, I'd be surprised if it wasn't different. And clearly, depending on the type of meal, etc., you know, we know um, some of the sort of parasympathetic effects of having a meal versus doing exercise is almost in opposition. So I, I think, you know, I, I would be very surprised if um, having a meal you know, later on is is not going to have a different effect on sleep compared to exercise. I would probably expect light to have a similar effect to exercise. I think, you know, you can look at some of the studies, Youngstead, people like that have done, they're very interested in, in shift workers. So, you know, what, how can we sort of best improve metabolic health in shift workers, but also make them feel alert and awake during their night shift? And they've been using very bright lights in combination with exercise before a shift and and they seem to work in synergy to sort of um, improve metabolic health in the short term at least and improve alertness so 
I would imagine that sort of exposure to light and exercise in the evening have kind of similar outcomes but clearly the the you know there are differences physiologically as well so as i mentioned the impact of exercise on blood flow changes in metabolites whereas the, the light sort of almost a pure zeitgeber of the scn which is then going to have all, all the sort of hormonal effects so it might be there's there's differences there in the in the sort of hormonal versus peripheral tissue kind of impact on on sleep quality but I would imagine they'd be in the same direction for light and, and exercise exposure. I could be wrong. Clearly, we need to do this research. Uh, it's, not, it's not been determined yet. A lot of work to be done, that's for sure. I look forward to the years, decades of, of work that comes out of your now nascent, but in the future, really robust laboratory. We'll go with that. Now, you mentioned earlier that ethnic differences likely present here. Uh, I imagine racial differences as well. You know, obviously the circadian rhythm is something that organically developed in response to the environment that the organism was exposed to. And so it makes a lot of sense that wherever your ancestry was kind of came from is going to have a huge influence on the characteristics of your own individual rhythm from kind of an innate perspective. But obviously the rhythm can adapt. And so it gets a really complicated picture, as you pointed out earlier, that there really is this blurred boundary between nature and nurture and the circadian rhythm. But when thinking about kind of individual characteristics here, clearly there's going to be some differences at the ethnic and racial levels. Do you think when thinking about sport type and when their practice schedules may be more commonly organized or competition schedules where they're stabilizing this abnormal amount of movement into their rhythm, do you think that can have an effect on moderating the relationships we're seeing here between chronotype and kind of exercise timing? Absolutely. So we know from the, the literature that, you know, I was mentioning earlier, this divergent exercise capacity between morning and afternoon, evening. And as I said, that seems to be much clearer in sort of high intensity strength type exercises. So I think rugby is probably a very good proof of concept model for this sort of this time of day exercise effect. It would be really interesting to do more studies on endurance type exercises because it's much, much uh, less different in times of day in terms of the exercise capacity and endurance exercise. And it was interesting in, in the study that we had that the rate of perceived exertion, the RPE, it, it was, I think it was non-significant. There was a, a significant interaction in our study but the trend was very, very clear for me in terms of matching with the chronotype so that the uh, people with evening chronotype f find the evening exercise much easier, whereas people with a morning and in intermediate find the uh, lunchtime exercise much easier. So I think that plays into to chronotype as well. We know that there's this change in the exercise capacity with time of day, high intensity exercise. We know that in our study, the rate of perceived exertion matched with chronotype. So does that apply also to endurance type exercise in which we know there's less difference in the time of day capacity? Would that also match with chronotype in the same way? And I'm, I'm not sure it would. So I think clearly sport is different in terms of the, the exercise that one performs. And the we know there's this difference in the, the time of day divergence that's much more likely to occur in something like rugby training so I think I think the type of sport the modality of exercise again you mentioned you know indoor versus outdoor I, th I think that's really important as well 
so something we're getting interested in with our, with our research. So in our recent study, we had you know people with type two diabetes doing outdoor exercise in in summer versus winter, and we potentially see you know divergent effects there. Of course, geographic location is going to come into play as well, and, and as you mentioned, you know it's going to be very very different in terms of light exposure environment in, in different parts of the world. So I think I think many, many things to to consider here as well. Before we go into our, our final question on the deeper dive, I, I would be remiss given your remarkably impressive strong background in biology to to not ask this question. So a couple episodes prior we had now Dr. Angus Burns and Dr. Jackie Lane on to talk about interindividual differences in light sensitivity, looking at it from a genomic perspective, the genomic architecture. And I imagine there's probably inter-individual differences to, I guess, exercise, if you will, and their response to the circadian system. From a genomic perspective, do you have kind of an understanding of that? Has that been teased apart at all? Yeah, so, I mean, what we know from the literature is that mutations in the core clock impact on sleep quality. Um, so that's something that's that's been studied. There's some evidence that some other mutations in the core clock might impact on metabolic health. But there's been very little research done on, on how mutations in the core clock might impact on circadian rhythm of exercise time of day. I think what is interesting, you know, thinking again about the differences in different sports and the modality of exercise is we also know that um, different muscle fiber types have different circadian rhythms in, uh, in the body. So, you know, if you think about fast and slow twitch fibers and, and how they're used in different sports, but also thinking about the intra-individual differences. We know that people have naturally occurring differences in the amount of um, slow and fast twitch fibers, and they seem to have quite distinct uh, circadian rhythms in terms of the, the core clock genes and how they're expressed throughout the day. So, you know, I think there's so much to consider there, um, but definitely I would be surprised if there wasn't uh, genomic differences of quite a high magnitude. I don't, again, it's hard to say whether that's down to conserved genetic mutations or whether there's epi epigenetic phenomena occurring there. And again, if it's epigenetic, then it's likely to, again, be very hard to distinguish the effect of environment versus uh, hereditary effects. So it fascinates me when we have something that isn't easy to distinguish and, and isn't binary. And I think that's probably my favorite place to be. So again, lots to think about, lots to consider. Yeah, beautifully said. And I just, I love that you, you touched upon the complexity again of this nature-nurture boundary that we kind of artificially create. Because as you pointed out, we inherit some aspects of our epigenome, but of course, these are modifications that also emerge across our, our lifespan here as we experience new environments, all different things. It's unclear whether or not these things could be targeted potentially, uh, epigenetic sites that could potentially lead to more resiliency per se, maybe to circadian disruption. We could, if that's the case, you can see the practical implications there in situations like shift workers and things like that. But thinking about this study in general and the findings here, with your research, again, translational, you're not just thinking about this as like, hey, scientific finding, cool, I've done my work here. You're thinking about this kind of big picture and how this may translate over into the real world and how it may be actually implemented. And for me, I'm stuck here in some ways, Brendan, because yes, this makes a ton of sense. And yes, it makes sense to just be like, yeah, for those that are morningness, well, they should exercise earlier in the day. And those that are eveningness, well, maybe they shouldn't exercise very close to their bedtime, but there's more wiggle room and they should 
organize their day to exercise in the evening or in that period of time. But there are these constraints, these kind of non-negotiables, these things like school, right? Maybe some social desires as well, uh, limitations when it comes to parental transportation or just access to training facilities. So what can we do to best situate the individual with the timing of their exercise that's likely to produce the best sleep health for them so that they can be their best selves going forward? Yeah, amazing question. And, you know, I think we we touched on it a little bit earlier, but in all my research with exercise, you know, I'm constantly thinking about this for all groups, not just for adolescents. And time again, from my own sort of personal experience of, of living in different countries with different types of infrastructure, and from the literature as well, I think there's growing evidence that building physical activity into one's day-to-day life and day-to-day activities is the best way to incorporate it into a sort of healthy pattern. And it's the best way to have prolonged adherence to physical activity. You know, adherence to exercise programs is, is pretty poor. People do it for a bit and then it becomes inconvenient or hard. And, and they stop doing it. So I think, you know, we really, really need to look and take a leaf out of the sort of Northern European countries' books, look at cycle infrastructure, look at walking to work and school. They're also very good at, uh, and it's becoming more prevalent in, in the US and the UK as well, I know, at sort of getting children, young children and adolescents to spend time outside doing physical activity you know, understanding the benefit of physical physical activity, not only to to health, mental well being, to met, to metabolic health, but also there might be some impact on on school grades as well. And again, that's a very controversial area, and it's not clear. But if that is true, and all the other benefits as well, I think it's essential to incorporate it into our day to day lives as much as possible, and also provide time in the middle of the day when our circadian rhythms are sort of primed and and ready to do exercise rather than later in the evenings when we know it might impact on sleep, which is already pretty poor in in adolescence, then I think that's absolutely critical. So I think, you know, really, uh, again, we don't have the power to do this, but all we can do is is present evidence, try and communicate and disseminate the evidence that sleep is critically important, it's disrupted in people with adolescence, exercise is is hugely beneficial and we need to build that into our day-to-day lives as much as possible and we can do that through infrastructure in terms of physical infrastructure but also we can do that with making time available for this critically important intervention absolutely spectacular and you're right like this to me seems like there needs to be a bit of a radical transformation of society structure to really integrate these findings and we're not going to be able to do that. That's got to come from higher up, if you will. But we can speak out and showcase the science and continue to emphasize the need here and steer them in certain directions. Because as we've emerged from COVID, it really does seem that there is much more desire from a societal level to have more of a personalized, flexible, either occupational or academic schedule. Now, the complexities of changing that whole thing from a societal level, I won't even pretend to understand. But it seems like there's movement in that direction. And as you pointed out, that seems to be kind of the answer is like, can we give people the hour or two in the middle of the day where they're not guilty or they're not taking time off from work per se? It's not condemned. It's actually 
encouraged and afforded and kind of abolish this eight hour, nine hour consistent across the day work schedule that we've realized doesn't need to be in place and maybe causing more harm than good. And I see that very similar in kind of the academics of, well, maybe we could do a little bit more of the hybrid stuff so that the students can have more time to be at home or to train and time that's more aligned with their biology and, and their preferences. I think that's the next iteration here is really building those in. But your response is absolutely perfect. And, you know, honestly, the mystery is resolved. I have found my keywords for the keyword association. <laughs> Somehow they ended up in the manuscript closer. So back to keyword association. I'm just kidding. No, uh, we'll still uh, close down the episode, Brendan. I just appreciate your time, truly. I, I know we went much longer than I a priori mentioned to you. But honestly, your wisdom, your personality, the depth and breadth of your knowledge could afford a series of episodes. So we'll have to have you back on in the future when you expand upon this research. But when you finish the study, you know, as you're talking it through with Dr. Saidi and colleagues, what, what questions arose for you? Or where do you think the research should head kind of proximally and downstream to best advance this line of inquiry? Well, firstly, thanks, you know, for, for the time today, Jesse, I really enjoyed it. But, um, you know, I, I think discussing this, uh, I met with uh, Usama last week, and we're really excited to collaborate more on this, you know, um, and combine our, our two sorts of expertise. And I think we need to start using these amazing polysonography technology in, in many populations here. So I, I think we're going to try and build that into our studies with metabolic health. And I think, as you alluded to earlier, you know, look at the relevance of this study with, uh, with Usama and, and Pascal in terms of the relevance to other groups, you know, does, does this, do these findings apply to other groups and in, in less standardized groups, potentially with less ability to be instructed to refrain from caffeine and screen time, which was incredible in this study. And I think, you know, that would be really important. But of course, when we lose standardization, we need to improve our ability to capture what's happening. So I think we need to bear that in mind as well. But yeah, certainly to look to look at the applicability of these findings to more groups. Sounds like you have an awesome formulated team at this point, which is outstanding. And if you need any support from across the pond, maybe get some different sample characteristics, things like that. I know some people here in the United States who could chip in and, and uh, provide some access to athletes there. So maybe we'll have to talk back channel on that one. But again, thank you so much, Dr. Gabriel, Brendan, for taking time out of your day. I will plug kind of your social media uh, lab contact in the show notes, but I do have a final question mm -hmm. before you go. Arguably the most hard-hitting, difficult question to answer. If you were afforded unlimited funding and there's no constraints, so no barriers, this is a totally like hypothetical pipe dream scenario to explore a singular sleep and or circadian topic, what would you investigate? Great question. I love, I love these type of... Yeah, insane questions. We often ask our students this as well. And I, I think my current interest is probably where I'd go, you know, my current passion, which is really looking at shift work. I think it's the acid test for circadian chronobiologists in many ways, because we have this population of people who have disrupted circadian biology. And I think understanding the biology behind that is is absolutely fascinating to me. And we have lots and lots of impressive data you know, from Frank Shear, other groups where people have, have been taken into a lab setting uh, and, and shift work has been mimicked in many respects. And the fundamental changes in biology there are incredible. So 
we know that you know when we disrupt sleep in a, in a lab setting is almost a 25 percent reduction in glucose and sugar storage in the body after one night of disrupted sleep which i i think is just incredible and shows that the sort of fundamental biology uh, which is implicated in circadian disruption so i think following that up and looking in a real world setting at shift workers and looking at re- what's really happening to their biology night on night um, day after day uh, which leads to this phenomena that we see in the epidemiological studies whereby alternating shift work increases the risk of developing type 2 diabetes by about 45 percent so it's a huge increase in the risk of developing type 2 diabetes in shift work and i think understanding the biology that engenders this would be my passion so if i had unlimited resources i would do every type of omics collect every type of data, use uh, amazing uh, wearable technology on shift workers. I would pay them lots of money so they would hear well to my study. I would probably film them if I could get ethical consent to look at their food intake, things like that. And that's the type of study I would do. I love it. And the listeners won't be able to see it, but uh, the enthusiasm that Brendan shares in this passion uh, emerged across his face. There was so much smiling and just excitement as he was unpacking that. And yeah, I'm pretty convinced now that you're going to create the perfect research study and you're going to resolve all of our missing gaps in knowledge. So thank you for doing that. And also for plugging in Dr. Shear, who I overlapped with while on the board of directors for the SRS, and he actually was a supporter of this initiative. So thank you, Dr. Shear. And all, if you do not have the bridge connection yet with Dr. Phil Chang. I'll have to bridge that one in the relation to shift workers as he's doing a lot of great work on that area. But Brendan, thank you again for your time. I want you to get back to your family, your kid. Congratulations there again on your daughter. And thank you again. Thanks, Jesse. Really enjoyed it today. Thank you very much. All right, listeners, I really hope you enjoyed that interview. We're now going to transition to the SRS Club Hypnos and Associated Data Blitz portion of this episode, with the episode closing after audio recordings showcasing the research from some of this year's Data Blitz participants. An interesting wrinkle is that we will be doing a little bit of time traveling here, as this episode will be released after the completion of the 2023 SRS Club Hypnos. So I really hope everyone had a wonderful time this year. And please make sure to prioritize registering and attending next year's event if you weren't able to attend this year. Now, for those unfamiliar with the SRS Club Hypnos event, here is an overview. Since 2015, the SRS Club Hypnos event has been a highlight for attendees at the annual Associated Professional Sleep Societies, or APSS, meeting, which is also known as the Sleep Conference. Annually, SRS members gather to socialize with colleagues over food and drink. Most notably, the infamous Data Blitz competition occurs during Club Hypnos. Presenters are invited to participate in the Data Blitz based on their APSS Sleep Conference abstract submissions, with selected participants broken into four teams, translational, clinical, basic, and trainee. Each presenter is given one minute to present, and at the end, the audience at Club Hypnos is invited to vote for the winning research group. Club Hypnos is one of the most attended events for the SRS and is a must for any SRS member attending the annual conference. For me, Club Hypnos provides a phenomenal opportunity to network and socialize with SRS members in a rather informal and casual setting. As a trainee, I have found this event to be remarkably helpful for providing organic opportunities to connect with more senior members, while also reinforcing past relations and cultivating new relations among the SRS community. The experience is truly 
truly one of my favorite aspects of APSS. Before showcasing some of the research included in the Data Blitz portion of the 2023 Club Hypnos event, I must acknowledge and congratulate all 12 participants. And I'm just going to get ahead of it because it's probably likely that I'm going to make a mistake here. I really apologize in advance for any butchering of names. It is truly not intentional. Now, drum roll, please. This year's translational group included Drs. Xiaoping Ji, Emily Homan, and Philip Chang. The clinical group included Dr. Sheila Garland, Diego Mazachi, and Emerson Wickwire. The basic group included Drs. Saurabh Tosar, Brienne Satterfield, and Mohini Brian Ekstrand. Lastly, the training group included David Reichenberg, Alexandria Mensch, and Yuki Shen. Congratulations and cheers to all 12 of you for being selected as this year's Data Blitz participants. As I mentioned earlier, we have a special treat to close down this episode with some of the participants showcasing their research from this year's Data Blitz. So without further ado, take us home, Data Blitzers. Hi there, this is Dr. Alexandra Mensch. I'm currently a T32 NURSA postdoctoral fellow within the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Program and Chronobiology and Sleep Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. I love sleep and circadian research because of the impact that the work has on our patients. Sleep touches so many aspects of our lives and we really do make a huge difference. The research that I will be presenting is based on a completed pilot study where we evaluated the effects of CBTI dose, i.e. number of sessions, on insomnia and or fatigue in patients diagnosed with breast or prostate cancer. Last year, it was reported that CBTI affects both sleep continuity and fatigue, with high-dose CBTI producing up to a 72% reduction in pre-to-post measures of fatigue. This year, we assessed the durability of the anti-fatigue and sleep continuity effects of CBTI from post-treatment to three months. It was found that 82% of the subjects maintained their clinical gains with respect to fatigue, and 64% maintained their gains with respect to insomnia. This suggests that in cancer, clinical gains via CBTI are remarkably robust for fatigue outcomes. Excited to see you all at Club Hypnos. Hi, my name is Mohini Bryant-Extrand, and I'm representing the Veterans Affairs Portland Healthcare System and Oregon Health and Science University with an affiliation with the Brain Electrophysiology Lab. Bell Lab has designed a headpiece that sends a tiny current to electrically stimulate the limbic cortex during the first five minutes of N2 sleep. The overall goal was to boost time spent in N3 sleep to improve cognition and glymphatic clearance. The result is, in a preliminary study with 13 subjects, that it significantly increases average N3 sleep duration by roughly 10 minutes, or 10% of total N3 time. There is also an increase in total REM time compared to sham stimulation, but this did not meet statistical significance. Two larger clinical trials are underway to examine whether this device can improve sleep in patients with mild cognitive impairment, as well as whether this device can improve glymphatic function as assessed by MRI. Stay tuned. Hello everyone, my name is Diego Mazzocchi and I am an assistant professor of medical informatics at, at the University of Kansas Medical Center. I am delighted to present our audio data blitz here today at the SRS podcast. Thank you, Jesse Cook, for inviting me to present here today. And according to him, it looks like that I am the first recurring guest, even though my appearance today is just going to be very short. 
So uh, I'm going to talk about a study that uh, is entitled Structural Sleep Apnea Symptom Subtypes in Hypoxic Burden Independently Predict Seeing Cardiovascular Outcomes. So there are many studies out there that demonstrates that patients that express uh, excessively sleepiness at an increased risk of uh, incident cardiovascular events. At the same time, there are many other studies that show that patients with higher hypoxic burden or worse levels of uh, oxygen desaturation because of their sleep apnea are also at a higher uh, risk of certain cardiovascular outcomes such as cardiovascular mortality. So we decided to address a question that we're never really considered um, when, when try to combine those two independent predictors. Is the association between symptoms of types and cardiovascular risk independent of hypoxic burden and vice versa? So what we found uh, by looking at the data from the Sleep Our Health study, which was available through the National Sleep Research Resource, is that when we try to identify whether uh, hypoxic burden or symptoms of types are independently predictive of incident cardiovascular events, we found that the excessively sleepy uh, subtype is in fact, independently associated with incidence of events, while hypoxic burden is not. On the other hand, when we look at our outcomes of cardiovascular mortality, we do see that higher levels of hypoxic burden are associated with cardiovascular mortality significantly, and those, that association is independent of the symptom subtypes or the excessively sleepy symptom subtypes. With that, uh, our conclusion is that Depending on the cardiovascular outcome you're looking at, both are, might be important. So in thinking about uh, the, the, the therapy relevance or in understanding whether we should treat patients uh, that are sleepy or treat patients that are uh, with high hypoxic burden, uh, this study uh, demonstrates that both are important if you're wanting to prevent uh, important cardiovascular uh, events. but. Hypoxic burden is associated with cardiovascular mortality adjusted for symptom subtypes, and symptom subtypes are associated with uh, cardiovascular events, non-mortality, adjusted by hypoxic burden. Um, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Hello, everyone. I'm Xiaopeng Ji, an assistant professor at the University of Delaware School of Nursing, and a member of Sleep and Circadian Health Research Program at the University of Delaware. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to present my study on sleep-related metabolic syndrome with a focus on racial differences. Ethnic and racial minorities often face disparities in both sleep health and cardiometabolic well-being. In my research, I focused on the frequently overlooked population, late adolescents aged 18 to 21 years old. This developmental period is critical to study sleep health disparities because poor sleep health and cardiometabolic risk factors tend to increase more during this period than in other life stages. So using a sample of 60 late adolescents, we tested the interaction between race, ethnicity, and sleep health metrics or metabolic syndrome indicators. It's not surprising to find that non-Hispanic white adolescents had a significantly higher total sleep time and sleep efficiency compared to their racial and ethnic minority peers. What truly captured our attention was the moderating effect of race and ethnicity, the association between unhealthy sleep and increased risk for metabolic syndrome indicators were more pronounced in racial and ethnic minority adolescents.
when compared to white adolescents, those from minority racial and ethnic backgrounds were estimated to have a greater risk of metabolic syndrome when their total sleep time was below six hours and sleep efficiency was below 85%. In conclusion, our findings suggest the crucial link between unhealthy sleep and an augmented risk of metabolic syndrome particularly among racial and ethnic minority adolescents. This suggests the importance of targeting sleep health for racial ethnic minority adolescents in order to promote cardiometabolic health equity. Thank you for listening. Hello, my name is Sheila Garland. I'm a clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychology and oncology at Memorial University in Newfoundland, Labrador in Canada. I direct the Sleep Health and Wellness Lab where we conduct psychooncology and behavioral sleep medicine research to improve the nights and days of people impacted by cancer. One of the things I absolutely love about working in the area of sleep and circadian research is how rewarding it is to see the improvements that patients experience in almost all of the areas of their lives. It gives me great satisfaction and I love using creativity to overcome clinical challenges. I'm thrilled to speak about my research at the Sleep Conference Data Blitz and also here on the SRS podcast. With my research team and my collaborators, we examined whether we could use cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia to improve perceived cognitive impairments in cancer survivors. This is an important question because cancer survivors are two to three times more likely to experience insomnia than the general population, and roughly one in five cancer survivors will have comorbid insomnia and cognitive impairment. The combination of these two symptoms has a serious impact on their daytime functioning, particularly on their ability to return to work and perform like they used to. So we recruited 132 cancer survivors from one of the four Atlantic provinces in Canada. People were randomly assigned to treatment right away or after a two-month waiting period. CBTI was delivered virtually and participants met with a CBTI therapist weekly for seven weeks. Participants in the waiting group completed two additional assessments while they were waiting, and both groups completed assessments of their self-reported and also their performance-based cognition, their insomnia, fatigue, mood, and also their productivity at pre-, mid-, and post-treatment, and then again at three- and six-month follow-up. The treatment group reported a 12-point reduction in insomnia severity compared to a three-point reduction in the waitlist group. So we know that the treatment produced clinically meaningful improvements in sleep. But we demonstrated for the first time that treatment with CBTI was also associated with a clinically meaningful improvement in their perceived cognitive impairments, their abilities, and the impact that this had on their quality of life. This is an exciting finding because it shows that CBTI can be used efficiently to improve multiple symptoms in cancer survivors. So now we just need to improve access to treatment in cancer centers and the community. So I look forward to talking about our research to develop a cancer-specific CBTI app on another episode. Thanks for having me. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is Sleep Research Society Podcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, 
I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.